Hello, and welcome to this podcast from Consider This. Please let me know what you think and tell others about us on social media. This podcast was originally broadcast live on Northumberland 89.7 FM. You can hear this show live every Friday at noon. Thank you for downloading this program, and I hope you enjoy it. Hello, I'm Robert Washburn, and welcome to Consider This Northumberland, a current affairs program dedicated to the issues facing our community. We talk to the people on the front lines and those behind the scenes who make a difference in your life in Northumberland County. So I'm asking you, the listener, to take some time out of your busy day to consider this. Earlier this week, the staff and residents of Hope Street Terrace in Port Hope were vaccinated. These are among the first vaccines to be administered in Northumberland County. On Monday, the Halliburton-Kawartha Pine Ridge District Health Unit received 700 doses of the Moderna vaccine. If you listened carefully, there was almost an audible sigh of relief from health officials and others. It represents a tipping point in the battle to control the pandemic since it began a year ago. Today, we will mark this moment by interviewing Dr. Ian Gimmel, the Acting Chief Medical Officer for the Health Unit. I have dedicated the entire show to him. In this extensive interview, we will take a deep dive into the details around the significance of the first shipment of the vaccine to the county, and we will delve into the decision-making process around who will get the first shots and the order of those coming afterwards. He will bring us up to date on the rollout, as well as explain the details around how the mass immunization will take place when it comes time to start vaccinating everyone else. Just as important, we will discuss the communications coming from the health unit, looking at concerns over reporting incidents, enforcement, and transparency around the outbreaks. And finally, we will look ahead at what is next. Here is the first part of my interview with Dr. Ian Gamel, Acting Chief Medical Officer for the Halliburton Kawartha Pine Ridge District Health Unit. I'm so pleased to have with me today Dr. Ian Gemmel, Acting Chief Medical Officer for the Halliburton Kawartha Pine Ridge District Health Unit. Welcome to Consider This. Oh, thanks for having me. Earlier this week, the first shipment of vaccines arrived in Northumberland County. What was the thing that went through your mind when you found out it had come? Well, that we're, there's light at the end of the tunnel. The vaccine is, I hope, going to be our magic bullet. Uh, it seems that uh, there's lots of promise. It's safe. It's effective. It uh, could be the what we need to, to, to stop this unbelievably crazy time that we've been living in for, for a year now. We've got restrictions in place, and uh, I, I believe in them. Uh, stay at home order, I believe in. Uh, you know, the lockdown has been necessary to keep our thumb on the end of the hose so that we can contain the spread and keep as many people not affected as possible while we get the vaccine rolled out. But in my experience, vaccines are what can actually end outbreaks, and I'm hopeful that the same can be uh, said for this uh, pandemic, uh, say, a year from now, or maybe even less than a year from now. Uh, I've been involved in outbreaks throughout my career. The, the biggest of which was uh, an outbreak of meningitis back in the 1990s. Um, we had a number of deaths of previously healthy teenagers, and this is, you know, you can imagine the, the, the worry and the fear that this created. And we went in with a, uh, a vaccine and immunized 152,000 children and adolescents to stop the uh, outbreak, and it worked. As a matter of fact, uh, I think the same thing happened, if I'm not mistaken, in Victoria County back probably just before that last outbreak. And uh, what we know is that when we have a safe and effective vaccine and it's used expeditiously, and by the way, we did that, uh, those 152,000 kids in four weeks. So, I mean, the, the point here is to get vaccine into arms as fast as we can. So if you go in to a situation where there is uh, illness, sometimes even deaths, it's uh, really, and you've got a safe and effective vaccine, then you can make a difference. These vaccines are very promising. Um, the, uh, you know, people will say, oh, well, they, they were developed so fast, there must be something wrong with them, or uh, they must have taken uh, cut corners. What I can tell people is that uh, the this, these are the first vaccines that use this technology, and it's called mRNA, and I can explain what that means if we have time. But it is a new technology for vaccines, but it has 
has been used for other things for over a decade or so. Uh, and it was just basically applied to this, which gave us a huge leap forward in terms of the uh, development of the vaccines. And while it is uh, new technology for vaccines, the clinical trials have been extensive. Uh, we're talking about tens of thousands of people, so any common serious side effects would have been identified. Uh, we know the vaccines uh, are safe. Um, they've been they've been monitored, um, and uh, any uh, untoward event is looked at carefully. I actually will be reviewing any that uh, occur in our area to, to see what's going on with them. This is to assure people that the vaccines uh, are safe. And they also seem to work. The uh, uh, efficacy, as we call it, in uh, the clinical trials was uh, well over 90, close to 95% for these two vaccines. So um, we, <laughs> I'll go back to my original statement. It looks like we have some light at the end of the tunnel, and if we can get a vaccine into arms as quickly as possible, then uh, we can uh, potentially make a difference so that uh, uh, by this time next year or even sooner, uh, a life will maybe not be completely back to normal, but will certainly be uh, much more um, uh, a normal experience than, uh, than uh, we've been living through for the last 12 months. It has been a problem, of course, with the supply to Canada. That's been very well publicized. There's nothing that the provincial government can do about this. There's nothing that local public health can do about this. What I can tell you is that <clears throat> we have uh, set up uh, uh, planning uh, with the community partners uh, so that when we get the vaccine, it's going to go into arms as quickly as we possibly can because we're in a race with the virus, especially with these new uh, variants that have been reported that can spread more quickly. Uh, that gives a, a bit of a turbo boost to the virus, and we need to do the same thing for the vaccine. So we will be, once we get vaccine in our freezers, we will be uh, immunizing as quickly as we possibly can, because I do strongly believe that we will be uh, able to get ahead of it and to stop the uh, spread um, with the use of the vaccine. What the vaccine does is it gives enough uh, protection to individuals um, individually uh, so that the, if we get enough people uh, protected in the population, the virus can no longer you know, jump from person to person to person, and that's what makes it go away. That's what gets this reproductive number that everyone talks about below one so that that will potentially make it go away. I'm not saying the virus will be go away forever, but certainly this um, uh, uh, huge no amount of uh, cases that we hear reported every day, thousands of cases in Canada, I think that we have a chance to make that uh, go away and uh, to, um, as I said before, get back to more, uh, more of a normal way of living. How many doses uh, have arrived so far? Uh, on Monday, which is the, uh, the 25th of January, we got 700 doses. That's enough to make a good start for the residents of long-term care homes across the region. Um, the province of Ontario has directed us to use the vaccine for the residents of long-term care homes because, frankly, when they uh, talk about the ring, iron ring around long-term care, this is the only thing that can be an iron ring. Um, you know, I don't know how else one can do it. Um, we've got... Uh, people who need care and we have people who go in every day to look after them, um, those people may inadvertently uh, be exposed and they may, during the period of um, uh, incubation, they may uh, not even know that they've got the uh, virus and are infectious when they're going into care for people. And this is how it gets in. Until we can get the residents protected and get the staff and the essential, what they call the essential caregivers protected, we, we don't have an iron ring. And so this is going to make the difference, I, I hope. Once we get all of the residents done, and we're going to, we hope we've been promised more vaccine next week, uh, a little bit more than this week, uh, if it comes through, uh, we think we'll be able to do most of the residents, if not all, and we're going to do it uh, quickly and with a, a little bit of priority. In other words, areas of higher risk will do first to get those folks uh, their first dose uh, as quickly as possible to reduce their risk. And then as soon as we get the uh, additional supply, and that's not going to be probably till mid-late February, um, then we will go on with the um, prescribed list of people who should get this vaccine. I notice you haven't mentioned doctors or nurses. Why are they not going first? Well, they are at risk, and 
the front line. They are potentially exposed, but there's a couple of things, and, and, and they do deserve the ethical consideration of reciprocity. In other words, they're looking, they're putting themselves out there, they're putting them and themselves or their families at risk, so they should have some protection. Uh, and I agree with those things, but uh, when we kind of stack it all up, um, the difference is that the elderly people living in long-term care are very vulnerable. They are going to have, they have the uh, mortality rate is significantly higher because of age and because of the other illnesses, respiratory cardiac, for example, that they might have. And they have no choice. That's their home, and, uh, and they can be introduced without, uh, without their knowing. In my home, I can shut the door and nobody can come in but in their homes they don't have that option because they need the people to provide care the, the healthcare workers I mentioned there are good arguments for them uh, but I'm going to ask them to be very patient because uh, of the difference in the risk so first of all healthcare workers have got good personal protective equipment I know physicians who have been exposed to coronavirus without infection because they followed the personal protective equipment uh, 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 recommendations carefully and therefore they did not become infected so they've got that on their side but in the um, unlikely situation that they should get infected uh, even um, uh, despite those precautions let's say there's a you know for some reason there's an aspiration that occurs that uh, that uh, spreads the virus throughout the air they become infected they're younger healthier and they're not completely but they are much less likely to suffer the complications so I think that you know I'm, I'm sympathetic to the argument of our, my colleagues in the health professions and uh, I want to assure them that they are next on the list as soon as we get the long-term care homes done but look what's happening across Ontario I haven't checked it uh, this week but what was quoted last week was 40 percent of long-term care homes in Ontario are an outbreak. You've got a situation in Barrie, Ontario, where almost everybody in that home has uh, been infected and they've had dozens of deaths. This is not something that we want to see go on. So from my point of view, um, I, I agree with the government's um, uh, list of priorities. Let's get those long-term care homes done as fast as we can. And then as soon as we got more vaccine, then yes, let's get all the healthcare workers done. They're next. Um, uh, retirement homes would be high on the list. Uh, people on home care, um, uh, the indigenous communities, all you know, very high on the priority in, 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 in uh, the first phase. And then when we're uh, swimming with vaccine, and I'll use those, I, those are not my words, that's what we've been told by the people who are uh, getting the vaccine for us in say March and April, then we'll go to the community, we will get uh, first the uh, older people done because they're at higher risk of complications and, and, and death. Um, we will then go to the general population and we're aiming to get at least 70% of the population immunized because that seems to be the key number that will give us that community protection that will stop the virus from being able to spread um, uh, from person to person. So there is a plan. We're going to follow the list uh, meticulously uh, as we have been requested to do. And I think the only thing I can say right now is thank goodness we've got some vaccine and I just can't wait until we have more vaccine so that everybody in Ontario and everybody in HKPR who wants um, the uh, coronavirus vaccine can get it. But, but let's take, for example, Toronto. There are doctors in Toronto, nurses in Toronto, hospital staff in Toronto who are getting inoculated. And yet down here in the rural area in, in, in Northumberland, uh, our doctors don't seem to be the same priority. Some people may be sitting at home saying to themselves, wait a minute, that doesn't seem to jibe. What would you say to them? Well, I guess what I say is that we're in uncharted water here and that uh, you make plans and you hope for the best and then you realize that maybe the way that things uh, were rolled out wasn't exactly um, uh, the way that uh, it should have been rolled out, based especially on the fact that there are unknowns like the fact that the supply shrivels up for a few weeks' time. I agree with you that uh, it's, it would be fair to have um, the vaccine available to everybody at the same time, but that's just not the way it's going to be because of the supply. And I guess I would also just add that um, there is a differential in risk geographically in in Northumberland, Coeur the Lakes and Halliburton. We're actually very lucky. We're far enough away from Toronto that we don't have the same concentration of population that allows the virus to spread. 
upgrades so quickly, and we have a different lifestyle. So if you're living in a high-rise apartment building and sharing elevators, or if you're on the TTC, as an example, uh, to get to work, um, and you didn't plan where you live before the the, <laughs> the pandemic began, your home is where your home is, and some people have to take the uh, TTC um, every day, you're putting yourself at risk there. So uh, that that's why I think it was decided, because of the higher incidence in Toronto, to uh, get the healthcare workers done. What was unforeseen was the fact that the uh, the supply would be suspended for a few weeks' time, and I think that was the uh, unforeseen that made this appear not to be fair. But let me just add that um, I'm, again, very sympathetic to the argument uh, to get the healthcare workers uh, done right across um, the province and certainly across our area as well. Uh, the fact that we've got uh, fewer uh, cases um, is, is, is a good thing in the sense that there's less risk of exposure, but it is, uh, on the other side, uh, uh, not so good because we're ending up uh, uh, not getting the vaccine as early as other people in the, uh, in the Ontario health system. So let's talk about the long-term care homes that, that are going to be inoculated. Um, I noticed in a press release that Maplewood Long-Term Care Home in Brighton is being done, Pinecrest Nursing Home in Bob Cajun is being done, and Hope Street Terrace in Port Hope. How do you decide who goes first, and what is the process by which you're making these choices, setting these hierarchies? Well, uh, I, the, the short answer to that question is I trust the assessment and the decisions that our staff are making based on the principles that we lay out. And the principles are, first of all, which areas are at the higher risk in terms of incidents, which are the higher higher risk in terms of uh, actual uh, cases occurring nearby. And then in the case of Pinecrest, you know, which ones have had such um, traumatic experiences in the past that this will provide a huge amount of um, uh, moral uh, support and relief to them, knowing that the people in the long-term care home will be um, uh, a vaccine will be made available to them. But I will add that uh, the direction that we've got from the uh, province of Ontario is that all residents of long-term care homes must be uh, immunized by the 5th of February. Uh, we hope to do a, have be finished before then. So we're not talking about waiting months to get everybody done and, and, and that uh, some long-term care homes are way down the list. Uh, this is all going to happen in the next two weeks with the vaccine that we've been um, uh, uh, told that we are going to get. And uh, uh, um, the, you know, while there may be some places that uh, are somewhat higher risk, they're all at some risk because there's coronavirus around We're in the middle of a pandemic, and who's to say which home is not going to is going to be next? So, um, it's it's not a perfect system. We're doing uh, sort of the best we can um, with the information we've got, and uh, the key here, and I'll keep saying it over and over and over again, is the rapidity of getting vaccine into arms, uh, because the sooner we can do that, the sooner we'll have the protection, and that's all dependent upon the supply that we get. Well, I could see, you know, you could imagine people who, for example, have a loved one in the Golden Plow Lodge in Coburg, for yeah. example. Yes. They had just yeah. announced the other day its third case of COVID-19 in a few days. Um, why did, you know, it's not getting priority. I mean, you can honestly see people saying, well, wait a minute, maybe they should have been first or they should be second. I can see people sort of putting that through their head. How do you speak to them so that they're not as concerned? I mean, I, I appreciate your points, but people listening to this are going to go, why, why, why? Yeah, well, the answer to the question is, it's not going to be long. It really, and I think what we all have to do in this situation is to be patient. It's been a year that we've all been at risk. It's been a year that long-term, all long-term care homes have been at risk. Uh, it's been a year that we've been battling outbreaks here, there, and everywhere. And as I mentioned, uh, as I, uh, 40% is the last I checked, of long-term care homes in Ontario are affected by outbreaks currently. We're going to get to uh, the um, uh, all of the long-term care homes as fast as we possibly can. And, uh, you know, you, you, you got to make a decision. And uh, uh, if the decision were, uh, you can have some vaccine this week, but everybody else has to wait until June, I think um, I would, uh, you know, have to, you know, look at it extremely carefully to make sure that we were... Um, uh, treating people as fairly equitably as possible. But in this situation, it's sort of like, uh, where are we in the line? Well, you're right next in line, and uh, you will be getting a vaccine uh, in 
Now, once they're vaccinated and they're properly inoculated, um, what will this mean for families and friends of these people living there? I know there's been a lot of talk about families feeling they haven't been able to visit, um, friends not being able to make connections. What is there going to be anything that changes? The first thing that's going to change is that the, the uh, residents of long-term care are going to be better protected and we, we truly hope, fingers crossed, touch wood, all of that kind of thing, that the outbreaks will uh, will uh, evaporate. Um, you know, I, I use that word, um, uh, you know, not injudiciously because I've seen d- uh, uh, diseases in my career disappear with the use, use of a safe and effective vaccine. So we hope that we'll, we're going to have to be able to stop dealing with the outbreaks. That's good from the point of view of putting resources elsewhere, but it also is more importantly good because it means those folks are protected and we'll get the staff done next so that so that the uh, virus can't be introduced any longer into long-term care homes. As far as the, um, I should say, the social part of uh, the um, activities there and the visiting and so on, that may take a little longer because not only do we have to get the residents and the staff immunized, but eventually we have to get all of the uh, visitors uh, who may want to see loved ones immunized as well. And I don't foresee that happening right away, just as, like as soon as the residents are immunized and everything's okay, we still don't want others to be bringing the virus into the long-term care home. So I think it's going to take a while um, possibly till springtime or so until we're more back to normal uh, and we can uh, get the visitors immunized too so we know that the the risk of their taking coronavirus into long-term care homes is diminished considerably. I think that it's really important to say, and and I've been praising the vaccine and I've been saying it's the magic bullet, but it's not a magic bullet that's going to um, uh, be effective like tomorrow. Uh, It's going to take time. And so I think that we're still going to be wearing masks for a while. I think we're still going to be social distancing for a while. I think we're still going to be asked not to gather for a while until we get a a, a certain proportion of the population that I just mentioned uh, immunized so that we know that that virus is no longer able to circulate well in our population. This virus, it's a human virus. It uh, uh, now, it used to be an animal virus, but now it's a human virus. It it, uh, is transmitted almost or exclusively through person-to-person contact. We're social creatures. We want to be in social contact. So to be safe and to be able to resume that social contact, including in long-term care homes. We've got to get the population protected so that the, uh, nobody gets ill and the virus can't circulate. I want to talk some more about the rollout of the vaccine. Now, the provincial government has pushed back some dates on its rollout plan due to the interruption of the supply of the vaccine. Can you, in just simple terms, help us better understand? Because there's a logistic side to this, but there's also a political side. And it's easy for misinformation to get out there and people not to understand how these things work. Would you be kind enough to tell us how did what happened and why did it happen and is this normal or is this strange? Well, I guess uh, what I would say is my experience um, in uh, in public health, but generally, but specifically in regard to vaccine programs, is that um, you have to be ready for the contingencies and uh, the contingencies that will really stop uh, us from getting immunization done as fast as possible is uh, having a shortage of one or another of the things that we need. It could be a shortage of vaccine, which we're experiencing now. It could be a shortage of supplies. You can't get this vaccine into arms unless you've got needles and syringes and uh, ways of discarding them. Uh, You can't get needles into arms unless you've got a trained human being to do so. So all of these things have to be in in, in place. Uh, I don't know all the details of what happened with the uh, vaccine supply. Uh, my understanding was that um, perhaps the earliest um, uh, contracts or overtures that were made with vaccine companies didn't work out for whatever reason, and therefore uh, there was some scrambling that happened during the summer to get um, vaccines, which put us farther back in the queue. That's what I've that's what I've read in the newspapers and in some of the uh, assessments. Uh, uh, but you know, something um, none of us were flies on the wall. None of us knew what was going on in those telephone conversations with the manufacturers. None of us were in the rooms making these decisions. So it's really uh, uh, very much up to the speculation. Bottom line is that I think that uh, in uh, this immunization program, we should be looking at the positive always. 
six weeks ago, we didn't have any vaccine, and now we've got the promise of everybody having the vaccine by, uh, well, at least I heard this morning, was one of the uh, federal ministers saying by September, everybody who wants the vaccine will have it. You know, other vaccines have taken years uh, to develop. This one we had, um, we've had in place within a year, uh, even less than a year, since the first case was documented in Canada on January the 25th, uh, 2000. And we just are a little beyond that uh, now in time. Uh, those of us who work in vaccines all the time are basically stunned by the um, rapidity with which we have not only safe vaccine, but vaccines that work. And I can't tell you how often you hear about clinical trials that have been abandoned because the vaccine didn't work out, the protection wasn't there, it wasn't good enough. And yet here we've got a safe and effective vaccine that um, has developed in record time. So. I think, uh, as they say, I always look on the bright side, and I think this is an opportunity to do so. Just remembering that six weeks ago we had no vaccine. We were all looking at um, a uh, uh, situation where we might be dealing with this virus for quite some time. You know that the, in the pandemic of 1918-1919, it took five years for the cases to level out. It was very disruptive to life, and that's what we were facing. But with, and, and don't forget, they didn't know, they didn't have a vaccine against influenza then, nor did they even know it was caused by a virus. It wasn't discovered until the 1930s. We've got technology that kind of just makes your head spin, and I think we just have to be very grateful that we're there, and uh, as I said before, just look on the positive side, which is that we might be back to normal uh, by the end of summer. But isn't it a bit fallacious to say that we did it in a year. I mean, it, when you dig a little deeper, you find out that it's actually 20 years of research that went into this particular type of, of methodology. You mentioned it earlier, and and it, it actually, it just so happened that the technology just happened to match up and they were able to tweak it, and that's why it happened so fast. Can you tell us a bit more about this vaccine and explain uh, in some detail what it is and why it's so unusual and why it's effective. Yes, well, you're right. The technology has been looked at for uh, a while. I understand that they were looking at cancer vaccines and using this technology. But just to explain how vaccines work so that people really have a good understanding, most of the other vaccines that we have have got either all or part of, um, let's say, a virus or a bacterium with proteins on the surfaces that uh, our immune systems can react to. When the proteins are introduced through illness, or through a vaccine, then our immune systems react and uh, they develop uh, a number of different protective measures. Some are called antibodies, which are proteins which can attack viruses and bacteria. Others are called killer cells, which actually will immobilize and kill viruses and bacteria. So when these proteins uh, are introduced to the immune system, um, then the uh, factory goes into uh, play. The, the, there's a rapid development and design of these proteins specifically for these viruses and bacteria. And that's what protects us for the next time that we get it, which is why if you had measles, for example, you've got lots of, um, uh, uh, if not uh, antibody proteins, you've, you've got uh, um, these killer cells around that can quickly, uh, after the first illness, can quickly then um, uh, uh, render the uh, virus uh, uh, immobile and uh, therefore prevent a, a uh, illness a second time. With vaccines, we use the same kind of idea. We use the proteins, either um, you know, an isolated protein or part of a virus or all of a virus uh, so that the body can react in the same way but without the illness. And so that's the key. It's we're giving the person uh, the proteins that they need to uh, be protected and to have those antibodies and uh, and uh, uh, other cells so that um, people do not become ill when they're exposed to the virus or bacterium. With the uh, mRNA vaccines, the technology is slightly different. Um, what they do is, uh, with the, uh, the uh, technology, they don't use the protein itself. What they do is they use some genetic material that is uh, normally part of the virus that codes for one specific part of it. So you know that with RNA and DNA and in our genetic material, every little bit codes for different things. Well, they pick out the part that codes for a protein called the spike protein. This is the one that allows invasion into human cells. And uh, so with the, uh, they code for the spike protein and they put it on a, um, uh, um, it depends upon the, which vaccine it is, but different types 
technology or other different ways of doing it, they, but they get this mRNA in the vaccine coated for the protein. Once the vaccine is injected, it then is travels to the cells, and in the cells, the mRNA that's coding for the protein, actually it, the protein is created by the cell, and then we react to it. So it's one step before what we normally do. Normally we give the protein. With these vaccines, we give, we give the coding for the protein, but the result is the same. And I think that um, this actually holds some real promise for the future. As you know, our influenza vaccines have, uh, how should we say, mediocre uh, protective uh, levels. Uh, we want them to be more protected because elderly people die of influenza every year as well, or medically compromised people. We want to um, be, uh, look for better influenza vaccines, and this technology perhaps could be applied to influenza vaccine as well, so that we're coding not for, um, for the protein rather than trying to figure out which bit of protein to give. So um, that's how it works, and it seems to be working well. Uh, um, I, I, I just think that uh, we should all be very um, pleased that uh, and, and to, to, to understand that as a, as, a, as a species we've been so lucky that that technology was around that it could use for this vaccine and, and to have this potential effectiveness. Uh, we hope that that will be realized when it's used in um, uh, widespread in vaccine programs once we get this vaccine to market. Now there may be some people who are listening who um don't like the idea of vaccines and, and don't want to be vaccinated. What, what do you say to those people who may have some fears or concerns or feel that they have scientific evidence that shows that these kinds of things are dangerous? How do you speak to them? Well, I guess the first thing I say is there's no vaccine that is this dangerous because the only, I will, as a vaccine advocate and a vaccine um, a lover, I would say that the only thing worse than giving uh, no vaccine is giving a vaccine that's dangerous. It just isn't done anymore. The, uh, um, the clinical trials are, uh, for these vaccines have involved tens of thousands of people. Any uh, side effect that is uh, serious that would be common would be uh, uh, noted. And then there's also uh, monitoring that is going on. And don't forget, millions of doses have been given in the world already. We're not seeing um, serious side effects. So for, if anybody says this vaccine is dangerous, they're absolutely 100% wrong. That is not accurate information. The other thing that I should say is that when the clinical trials are done, the data is then uh, sent to what we call regulators. These are people who are experienced and knowledgeable about how clinical trials are done. And they then review all of the information that is accumulated from the clinical trials to review for safety and for effectiveness. And um, they don't get a license to use this vaccine in a specific country, like Canada, for example, it's Health Canada that does this, unless the data supports the safety and uh, efficacy of the vaccine. So that's the first thing, that the attention to detail paid to vaccines is way, way higher than it is for any drug or medication. And the reason for that is, as, as, you, as you will see, um, Drugs are used for specific people in the population, so maybe, I don't know, 1% of the population might receive a drug. In this case, everybody is eligible to get in, uh, this vaccine, and so therefore it has to be safe. Is that, vaccines are the safe amongst the safest of all the uh, medical interventions that we've got. And we've learned it the hard way because uh, I would say maybe 80, 90 years ago, there were situations when uh, people got ill because of uh, vaccines, and so that's why the regulations are in place. That's why we have these protections because so many people are likely to be exposed to them. I would say that people who uh, have questions, and I think it's reasonable to have questions. You know, as I said before, some people will say, oh, this vaccine was developed too fast, must have taken shortcuts. Ask your healthcare provider. Look at um, the reputable websites. And, uh, and by reputable, I think it's really important to, to, to emphasize that. The, uh, for example, the uh, Public Health Agency of Canada's website, the World Health Organization. Um, there's a website called Immunize Canada. It's run by the Canadian Public Health Association. Uh, in British Columbia, um, they've got, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's run in BC, but the information doesn't change from uh, province to province. This is still the same vaccines. Uh, Immunize BC's got good immunization, uh, good uh, information about immunization. There are, please, please, please go to good, reliable, knowledgeable sources that tell the truth because I sadly, there are many um, websites out there that do not 
them uh, because um, for whatever reason they are spreading um, mistruths which I think not only is harmful to individuals because they, if they refuse to have a safe and effective vaccine, but also can be harmful to uh, a societal goal here. And the societal goal is to end this pandemic so that we can get back to normal, so we can get some of the, the economy going again, so kids can go to school without all these restrictions, so that people can see their friends and loved ones and so on. There's so many reasons why we need to get this thing under control. And so a societal goal has to be to stop this thing. And I think Honestly, as I said before, vaccine is our only hope. You know, you can wear a mask as long as you want. It doesn't make the virus go away. Vaccine has the potential to make the virus go away. So the restrictions we have in place will keep it under uh, abeyance. But how long do we want to do that? Five years? I mean, with a vaccine in place, we might get this thing dealt with within a year. So it's, um, as I said before, it's our, it's our light at the end of the tunnel. How far do you think public health people are prepared to go, governments are prepared to go to ensure that we hit that target that you talked about, that 70% inoculated population, to ensure that this uh, this virus is going to go away or at least uh, be come under control? How far will they go? Well, I think that uh, the uh, most important thing here is to provide reliable, easy to understand, uh, accessible uh, uh, information. Because I've heard no one say so far that there will be any requirement to take this vaccine, even amongst, say, healthcare workers or the workers in long-term care homes. I've not heard anybody so far say that it's going to be mandatory, which means if you want to do that job, for example, you've got to um, uh, you know, have the vaccine. Um, there may be some... <clears throat> things happen uh, in terms of travel, uh, you know, in entering countries, that's up to governments to decide. Uh, it has nothing to do with public, uh, um, uh, as a public health decision, it's, uh, it becomes a, a government decision. Um, uh, and we have examples of this. So there's countries in the world where you can't go unless you've had a yellow fever uh, vaccine. And these, uh, these uh, health uh, conditions have been around for a long time. As far as this, these vaccines are concerned, what I am very hopeful is that uh, on a voluntary basis, people will understand that this is their ticket. This is getting out of the darkness. This is the way that we're going to be able to get back to normal. And therefore, that has a lot of attractiveness. And I think that uh, it's all about, if you say, what, what is government prepared to do? I know we're working on, um, uh, in uh, nationally and uh, provincially on information that people can have so they can understand what the vaccine does, how it works, its safety record, uh, its effectiveness and so on, so that people can make up their own minds. Uh, I think this is sort of like, um, you know, do you want a free car? Well, what if I get in the crash and die with that car? <laughs> you know, those are the kind of things that we don't want to avoid. Uh, this, this, you know, uh, this vaccine uh, is not going to cause you uh, uh, problems. It is going to uh, be a, uh, it's a gift because everybody, well, I guess we're all paying for it as taxpayers, but it is, everybody's eligible to get it to free of charge. There's no extra uh, fees attached to it. So why, if it's safe and effective and stops this, uh, vaccine, this uh, virus, why wouldn't we do it? So I think we have to uh, be very positive and look on how not only are we going to protect uh, you know, each individual, because each individual is going to want to be protected, especially those who are vulnerable, but how are we going to protect our society and to get on with, with the things that we need to have in place, like a robust economy and uh, you know, the social things that uh, clearly people like to do because sometimes they're doing them now when they shouldn't be, as an example. Well, I, I deeply respect your desire to to communicate this and, and, and your optimism. But let's take, for example, uh, how people have been behaving. I mean, uh, just before Christmas, uh, there was an announcement that we were going to go into a lockdown. People were being warned. And how, how many times have we heard, wash your hands, social distance, wear a mask? We were being told all these things. And yet people were going out. They were gathering uh, just before Christmas or even during Christmas, even during the lockdown, we see people not necessarily following the rules or the re recommendations or the guidelines. Are people still listening? Even though you may be putting out the message, are people still listening or, listening, or are we getting a pandemic uh, fatigue where uh, nobody's really listening and maybe people just don't care as much? And, and so uh, while you have the best of intentions, are we going to get the level of, of social participation that we need to achieve this goal? You know, you know uh, my, my dad was uh, in the Air Force during the Second World War. And 
six years. It disrupted everybody's life. He was shot down. He spent four years in a prison of war camp. His life was not normal during that war, and neither was my, my mother's, who uh, gave up her uh, university uh, studies to, uh, to, um, uh, to work for the uh, government. It was all necessary. Um, it's not a war as such, but it is not normal times. And I guess uh, what I would say is that what people, we have to understand is that um, we're in a very we're in a, a unique situation. I think most people who are alive today have not experienced this. I mean, maybe some of the very elderly will tell you what the war or the depression was like, but we're not in a normal time. And 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 I think we can't expect it to be normal. I think if people think that we're still in 2019, that's what's going to create the the the, 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 the uh, difficulties. Um, if when we gather. And when we travel, those are the two things in my mind that are most damaging in that they are the things that facilitate the spread of the virus. Yeah, we've heard about washing your hands. We've heard about the masks and everything. That's kind of, you know, we, that's been going on for a long, long time. And that's how you protect yourself. But what do we do about protecting um, uh, the, uh, the society? And if we do things that we've been asked not to do, like to gather, you know, whether it be for you know, beer in somebody's house or, you know, a uh, uh, pickup hockey game or whatever where people are, you know, potentially spreading the virus to each other. These are the things that are going to, to spread things. And what I would like people to understand is that some people will say, oh, well, I, you know, I'm, you know, pretty young. I, you know, don't get sick very much and I, you know, bounce back very quickly. It's not an issue for me. Well, it is. So let's think about uh, what happens if for a sort of a guy gets this, um, because he's uh, been out uh, for a beer with his friends or whatever. And, uh, and he gets sick and he's fine, but, but in the meantime, uh, he gives it to a friend whose wife is a, uh, a worker, a personal care worker in a long-term care home. You know, and that person then not only, you know, uh, infects others, but perhaps causes an outbreak with some deaths involved. We're only two or three degrees of separation from a vulnerable person in our society. So it's not just about me and how I'm going to deal with the virus. It's about how we deal with it as a society. And I think that perhaps we need to let go of this. It's my rights or individual freedoms until we get out of this uh, dark and difficult time that that we've never had to face before uh, in our lives. Uh, uh, and, 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 get to a point where we can get back to normal but in the meantime let's be working together let's not be pulling apart unless everybody do their they do their thing I, I will say that i understand that from the data i've seen from the province of ontario that two-thirds of ontarians are doing the things that they've been asked to do which is great but i i plead with i implore the other third you know we've got a chance to get ahead of this virus now uh the more we can limit the spread now until we get vaccine into arms, the better off everyone's going to be. The less likely it is that there will be hospitalizations and deaths. So please, not just for yourself, but think of your grandmother or think of your elderly, you know, uncle or aunt or whatever. And, and keep in mind that it's not just about me. It's not just about you. It's about all of us. I'd like to move on now and, and talk maybe on a, a few more positive things. Um, I'd like to talk now about how this inoculation is going to roll out. Are you currently putting together plans for the vaccination process? And, and could you describe what's involved in the planning of mass inoculations? Well, one thing, thanks for asking the question, because one thing that public health does well, it's mass immunization. We do that, you know, every year for the uh, influenza vaccine. As I mentioned before, uh, when we had the pandemic in 2009, we did mass campaigns. Uh, I've been involved in a couple of situations uh, like the meningitis outbreak that I described earlier, where we've done a lot of people in a very short period of time. So it's uh, it's it's not uh, completely simple, but it's also not rocket science. What you need is to have uh, a uh, the logistics in place so that you can get vaccine supplies and everything to, to the place that you need them uh, when you need them. You need to have a venue that's uh, uh, appropriate that can uh, allow uh, you, uh, us to immunize a large number of people in the shortest time possible. And in this case, without exposing uh, them to um, the coronavirus while they're waiting in line to get the vaccine because that would defeat the whole purpose of it. So it is a little bit more complicated than, than our, our, our ones in the past. We need to have, make sure we have qualified people who know what to do, what they're doing.
doing, who have had a bit of training around the um, you know, what this vaccine is like and how it's different. As you know, these uh, vaccines are freezer stable, so it's a wee bit of a, a different uh, uh, storage and handling requirements that, uh, than other vaccines. We need to have the, um, the cold chain, which uh, means keeping the vaccine cold in place at all times, from the time that we receive it until the time it goes into the arms. So there's a lot of logistics involved. Uh, we need to do communications. Who comes when? Uh, how do we document this in terms of giving people their documentation, but also keeping a record so that we know who needs a second dose and when they need that second dose. There's a lot of, um, it's a, it's a lot of organization that needs to be done. Um, it's not hard, it's just you have to have your checklist and make sure everything is checked off. Um, we want to have good um, uh, access as well because uh, people aren't going to drive five hours uh, possibly to get this vaccine, whereas they might drive uh, 20 minutes. So uh, all these things have to be in place. We are striking an uh, advisory group of uh, healthcare workers, uh, municipalities, uh, anybody who may be involved because we need to work with the municipalities to get venues. Uh, we may need to get police involved. Um, uh, believe it or not, in the 1950s, vaccine was stolen. Uh, and this vaccine potentially um, is worth something, especially when it's in short supply. So there's all kinds of different considerations to um, uh, have in, uh, in place. And I think this is a very good example where a check, a comprehensive, exhaustive checklist is really essential to make sure everything that needs to be in place is in place. Like, for example, crowd control. Um, you don't want to have uh, 2,000 people all milling around waiting for a vaccine in, in, in a chaotic way. You want to have people brought in in an orderly way so they're not exposing each other potentially and uh, so that it can be done uh, in, 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 in a in a, in a very um, organized and orderly fashion. So there, so we're looking to our colleagues for uh, for advice and input. Uh, we have actually developed the uh, first draft of a plan, which was due at the Ministry of Health last week, so it has been submitted already. And as I've kept saying to uh, the public, to MPPs, to our colleagues, we uh, when we get the vaccine, we're, we're ready to go. Okay, it it, it it sounds good. I, I hear all this, but I mean, do you actually have like uh, key sites in communities? Have those been identified? Have you spoken to police? Are, are they on board? Uh, you, you know, have, have you got locations? Uh, I, I, I'd be, I'm curious how far you are in terms of specifics. Okay, well, that's a very good question. So right now, uh, the vaccine that we're getting is all going to long-term care. So it's actually fairly straightforward. We know where the vaccine is heading uh, uh, when it comes into our, uh, our freezers. You're right that uh, for the uh, uh, large, larger uh, mass immunization campaigns that will be going on probably in early, maybe late spring, that there's a lot of planning has to be done. And uh, we're going to have to work with our municipal partners as an example, to look at, like, are we going to use arenas um, and which ones um, are, are, are most suitable, uh, which ones have the best parking, uh, are there ways of doing drive through Now, all of these specifics have not yet been nailed down. We know where they are. There's only certain so many uh, community centers and arenas around, so we know where they are and which ones they are and what the planning, the next part of the planning will do will be uh, now that we know where and what they are, which ones are going to work the best, which ones are going to uh, be most accessible, uh, which ones are um, going to be the easiest to use in terms of uh, the flow of crowds and that kind of thing. So that work is yet to be done, you're right, but uh, as far as the um, uh, long, so the, the uh, high-level uh, uh, planning, we know what has to be in place. Uh, the specifics will be coming out in, 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 uh, over the next few weeks. I'd like to talk about the reporting of cases and the efforts to manage the various provincial orders in an effort to control the spread of the virus. First of all, I want to talk about reporting. Now, there are a number of people in the community who are critical of the way that the health unit has reported cases in Northumberland. You see it on social media and elsewhere. Why do we not get the same level of detail that you see in other health units around the province? Well, I guess the first thing I'd say is that there's no... um standard that's been set across the province for how it should be reported. And um, <laughs> uh, there's actually, in a way, no requirement to report to the public. There's nothing in law that says one must. Uh, however, there, I think there is kind of a moral responsibility to let people know what's going on. Um, I think one 
very important principle to say early on is that it doesn't matter what the numbers are here, there, or uh, wherever today, because they could be different tomorrow. And th therefore, everybody needs to behave as though they're being exposed 100% of the time. So to, to know there's a case in, I don't know, name a, name a town uh, today, um, does not give you a guarantee that if you're in a different town, you're going to be all right. So, the, so that's not the reason for reporting. The, 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 everybody should be following the protective measures uh, all the time, regardless of where they are. Now, I think that, that uh, uh, I've looked uh, at um, uh, a number of websites of local public health agencies across the system, and there's a lot of uh, heterogeneity, and there's a lot of disparity in how these things are reported. Some report down to uh, the township level, others report only at the county level, and I'd say it's about 50-50. So the criticisms that have been leveled against uh, um, uh, HKPR uh, public health, I think are a little unfair in that um, they are... Uh, no different than a lot of other um, places uh, have done. And as a matter of fact, uh, the rationale for, for and it's an issue in other areas as well, because I've dealt with it in other areas, um, the, 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 uh, the, the, the rationale for reporting it at, say, uh, upper tier level, like county and city level, is that if you get to a very small town, it may be easy for some people who put their minds to it to figure out who it is who's got coronavirus. And while I hate to say it, there still is potentially some stigma attached for some people to have this infection. So that's the rationale that was originally in place. You're right, there have been complaints made because people uh, want information. I'm not sure why they need detailed information about this, but they, you know, there's been a, uh, a, a request made to the Information and Privacy Commissioner of Ontario to look at this. And my undertaking that I've said to our board said publicly as well that whatever the information of privacy commissioner tells us is the right way to do we shall do uh, that report is not yet back from them we're anticipating it uh, in the next few weeks and uh, we'll uh, make our, um, our changes uh, based on that uh, direction and guidance in the meantime we have uh, updated uh, our website and uh, tried to provide as much information as we possibly can in terms of um, say telling people what the cases are, not just since March, because that's not helpful, whole cases, uh, what uh, has been going on in the last 14 days, so that people have an idea of what the current situation is. So we've done some things to upgrade it, and I hope that people will find those things helpful. And in the meantime, we're waiting for that uh, direction from the Information and Privacy Commissioner. But you could see how, say, if you were a parent, wouldn't it be good to know if there's an outbreak at the school and, and you know, if you have family and friends to, to, that are going to the school? I mean, to have those that kind of information, we, we don't know what's going on at the schools. And there's a public accountability really there that, that's important. Another one is these workplace outbreaks. I mean, you look at some of the reporting that's been done around uh, workplace outbreaks. And I think next to retirement homes, this is the second largest source of outbreaks. And the numbers are shocking. I mean, manufacturing, distribution centers. I mean, back in the spring, it was the farms. Uh, we have literally nothing locally to, to tell us what's going on. And, you know, it's it's not just about avoiding, but isn't it not also about accountability and, and to know that our systems are working? Well, you, you make a good point in that it's uh, what, uh, not only is it important to do our jobs, but to, so that people understand that we're doing our jobs. And I would invite you to look at the website because, uh, you know, outbreaks I listed, uh, you can actually have a, a, a look at those things now. Um, so I think there have been some changes that have been uh, um, uh, important and will help people to understand. I think this is about helping the, our, our public to understand what's going on, not so they can take individual protective measures, but so they can understand what's going on. I think it's important for people to know that when a case is reported to us, and uh, they're all, we get them all because it's, it's based on the laboratory findings. So the laboratories uh, refer 100% of the positive cases to us. If there's a case in the school, for example, that we have undertaken and been directed to to deal with uh, uh, um, not fewer than 90% of the daily reports on that day. So on the same day, if there is a, uh, a case in a school, um, our staff takes action to work with the school, to notify the school, to do an assessment of what the risk is. Do we need to send that class home uh, or uh, has the uh, exposure not been um, significant enough to, to warrant a measure like that? This is the bread and butter work of public health. And I think what's going on here is that people don't understand that uh, our job is to receive the reports, to contact the cases involved or the school if it happens to be a school because 
be able to uh, protect those people. So those people definitely need to know. They definitely need to know. But does somebody who, I don't know, lives in a different county need to know what's going on in a particular school? Well, out of interest, yes, but not for any kind of, uh, um, uh, how should we say, uh, intervention to, to, to stop the spread. The people who need to know in every case will know, and uh, we have um, a, a, a classification made by the province of uh, cases which will go into isolation. They all go into isolation for the prescribed period of time of 10 days. Then high-risk contacts, these are people who have been exposed in the right way during the period of communicability or infectiousness of the case so that those people go into quarantine for 14 days. And then lower-risk contacts that we don't think were exposed, but we want to take every um, precaution. And so we're saying, look, we don't think you had an exposure, but we're strongly recommending that you self-monitor for 14 days. And if you develop any symptom that might be referable to coronavirus, please get in touch with us and we'll help you to get tested. So I think that, that there is, uh, the, the, the function of the communicable disease control part, which every local public health agency across Ontario is doing, and doing exhaustively, um, is what uh, is there to control, it, to control the spread. And I think it's important for people to know that. Does a person have to know uh, who lives in, I don't know, Port Hope, that in Midland there's a school that uh, is affected? Well, it might be of interest to them, but the people who need to know those people in that school in Midland, they do know, and they know what they have to do to uh, monitor themselves and then to protect others. But with all due respect, uh, I, I understand your point about people in Midland not knowing what's going on in Port Hope, but people in Coburg should know what's going on in Port Hope. And this is really about accountability as well, is it not? I mean, taxpayer dollars are paying for your people to do your, their work. And then when we talk about something like the, the outbreak at the Tim Hortons in Colborne, or there was uh, 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 some cases in the local Walmart, shouldn't we know all of these things that are going on? Shouldn't there we know what's being done? If there was any follow-up, did you go back? Did you make sure that the proper procedures for cleaning up and sterilizing were followed? And that, you know, a place gets the green light to go ahead. I mean, we're not even finding out that kind of information. I, I mean, is, is it not, as much as I appreciate what you're saying, and I know your people do great work. But if we don't know that, how how do we know that the system's working? Well, first of all, yes to all those uh, points. <laughs> all those things are done in every single case. I can assure you that uh, this is the, again, bread and butter work of public health, that uh, uh, we're not going for a coffee break when there are cases of coronavirus uh, around. Um, and, uh, you know, the uh, when you have a, a, a public place, like a place of business or whatever, then it gets even trickier because uh, how do we know who's been there? Um, uh, uh, you know, we know that the staff who works there, but how many customers have there been? There are some situations in which, um, uh, yes, public announcements have been made because we have no other way of knowing who is there. Uh, but there are. We also have to take into consideration what is the likelihood of transmission to others. And again, the highest risk contacts are those who are within two meters who have been spending a lot of time together, say co-workers, for example, they would be dealt with. Uh, but, to, uh, excuse me, I have to cough here. <laughs> but to your point, um, I think that uh, we're in a, quite an unenviable situation of having, of, uh, having the responsibility to do all this follow-up work. And at the same time, yes, the communications are important, but um, I think more important is making sure that the control measures are done and then do the communications the best you can uh, once you have all of those things into place. And, and if, if something is going to, you know, be, have less focus, I'd rather have the less focus on the communications temporarily than have them uh, less focus on the control measures that need to be in place so that people stay safe. Now, the province has undertaken a blitz of big box stores and doing inspections. Is that happening here in Northumberland? So this is an initiative of the Ministry of Labor. They've taken on this responsibility, and we have been informed by them. Uh, by we, I mean all of the medical offices of health across the province, that there will be blitzes everywhere in Ontario. So I can't tell you when and where they're going to do them, but I can tell you that uh, Northumberland, um, Halliburton, and Quartz Lakes are not going to be exempt or immune from this. There will be checks uh, of uh, big box stores, um, by the Ministry of Labor, uh, they will be looking to make sure all the measures that need to be in place are in place, including including having a safety plan. And 
think this is good because, frankly, in a big box store, um, it's a gathering. And uh, if you go to a big box store, I think you need to take the precautions to make sure that you stay distant from people, that you wear your mask, because there's a lot of people in those uh, big box stores, and they have to have things done right, or they can be just as much of a uh, source of uh, transmission of this virus there as, as you can at any other gathering. <clears throat> so I actually support very much the um, uh, uh, initiative of starting the uh, check around the, uh, the big box stores across Ontario. And I think that unless you do this kind of compliance check, um, you're not necessarily going to get all the things in place that need to be in place. And they do need to be in place for the reasons I've just mentioned. Now, what about enforcement? We hear one thing from the OPP provincially that they will be enforcing. The local police say they're taking an educational approach. Why are we not seeing more enforcement? Uh, you must get reports from people about incidents where people are not following the emergency orders. What's being done in response to these? Well, uh, when the first lockdown happened last March, yeah, it became very uh, clear, very quickly, that the um, uh, enforcement of the uh, provincial measures, because they are provincial regulations, would be by uh, uh, police forces and by uh, provincial uh, offenses officers. So uh, public health does have a role in enforcement, but our role is very specific in terms of ensuring that people maintain the quarantine in the case of contacts, or isolation in the case of cases, uh, that's where we're are putting our uh, focus because it, that's part of the control points for uh, containing the spread of the virus. These other things that are in place, like our store is compliant with requirements, are they doing curbside only, all the things that are in the provincial regulations are done by uh, the uh, enforcement people that are um, uh, uh, in, in place either through the province of Ontario, through the provincial offenses offices or through police forces. And while we're not involved with them, of course, we do cooperate and collaborate with them if, if we uh, come to our attention that there are uh, violations that need to be corrected. We see the numbers are dropping locally and across the province. Have, have we turned a corner? Uh, well, if you recall uh, the uh, image that I used early on, which said we've got our thumb on the end of the hose, uh, that's where we are right now. So, sure, there's less water coming out of the hose, but what happens when you take that thumb off the end of the hose? You're back to where you were, and that's where I'm afraid it's going to happen. Can we keep these restrictions in place forever? It's going to be very tough for people. It's going to be very tough for businesses. Uh, I think everybody wants to get beyond this. And um, while, sure, you can keep your thumb on the end of that hose as long as you want to, it it does have consequences for our communities. Um, That's why we're doing it now. Uh, and we're seeing some results. Yeah, there are fewer cases. I think that's good. It means we're containing the spread so that we can keep uh, fewer people infected while we get vaccine into arms. And we, so we've got to keep our thumb on that hose for a few more, well, should I say weeks or months? Uh, let's, you know, uh, people are quoting the end of the summer before we get it all done, so let's use that. So for a few more months, we've got to keep things in place. And then uh, once we get the entire population immunized, we can have a good look at what we can do and what we can't do. I think, I I say that because I think we will actually never get rid of this virus. It will now always be around. It'll be like influenza. It's here forever. A sad thing because a year ago, this virus was not around. It did not cause human disease, but I think that's where we're going to be. So there will be measures have to be in place to keep and under control even in the future and the, probably the best way to do that is to make sure that the entire population has continued access to a safe and effective vaccine because we don't know how long it lasts I, you know uh, if i had to guess i would say we're probably looking at um, uh, regular re-immunization in the same way that we look at regular re-immunization against influenza tetanus and some of these other diseases i could be wrong We don't know yet. Uh, It all remains to be seen and to be observed. But uh, uh, I think that um, uh, the long-term use of vaccine is probably where we're going to be because coronavirus, now that it's here, sadly, uh, I I think we're going to have to be living with it. So what's next then for us here in Northumberland? So what's next uh, in Northumberland is, uh, well, first of all, um, keep the faith. Uh, we've got to keep our um, 
population uh, in the uh, priority list, which I think is the right priority list, to protect the most vulnerable, the frontline people, uh, uh, then going to uh, older people in, in the population, and then get to the general population in as orderly and a rapid a, uh, a way that we possibly can. And then I think that once this is all done, this is where all of the energy is being placed right now. We are spending all of our time on the control of um, the uh, cases and uh, planning for immunization, which means all the other normal programs we do, like looking after babies and uh, you know, um, uh, you know, doing uh, screening of kids in schools uh, for vision and hearing. These things aren't happening. There's a cost to this pandemic. So the sooner we can get back to normal and get um, <clears throat> this under control, uh, then everybody can get back to what they normally do, which is to provide the services that we need to make our society. Um, I mean, we're lucky to, 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 to make our society as uh, prosperous and as successful as it is. I want to thank you so much for talking to me today. You bet. That was my conversation with Dr. Ian Gamill. Acting Chief Medical Officer for the Halliburton Kawartha Pine Ridge District Health Unit. I want to thank my guests this week for talking to me, and I want to thank all the listeners for tuning in today. Please join me again next week when we will talk to the people on the front lines and those behind the scenes who make a difference in your life in Northumberland County. So please tune in. If you would like to listen or share this or any podcast, please check out my website at consider-this.ca. There you will find past podcasts, news, and other information about life and politics in Northumberland County. Or you can go to the radio station's website at northumberland897.ca. I'm Robert Washburn. Thanks for taking time out of your day to listen in, and I hope over the week you will continue to consider this. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Consider This. If you have any comments, or would like to suggest a story, please contact me at considerthisnorthumberland at gmail.com or you can message me on Facebook at Consider This. If you enjoyed this podcast or are looking for more news and information about Northumberland County, please check out my website at consider-this.ca. That's consider-this.ca. And don't forget to share. And again, thank you for listening and stay tuned for more from Consider This.